as you may be aware, Adam Goodhart's new book, 1861, uh, has just been published within the last week. It's already on the New York Times bestseller list, and it will be the subject of the uh, front page review in the New York Times uh, book review tomorrow. So you're in early on this. And I'm Martin Sullivan. I'm director of the National Portrait Gallery. Many of you know our speaker, Adam Goodhart, uh, through his connection with the wonderful series American Pictures that is a joint uh, program of Washington College in Chestertown, Maryland. Is anybody here from Washington College? <laughs> Good. Washington College, um, the Smithsonian American Art Museum, whose director, Betsy Bruin, joins me in welcoming everybody. Betsy said she didn't want to be recognized, but I know where she is. She's right here. Um, and the National Portrait Gallery. Um, Adam, as uh, I think you know, is director of the CV Star Center for the Study of the American Experience at Washington College, a wonderful interdisciplinary program that looks at American life through the prism of the various academic disciplines and also through the lives and, and impacts of Americans uh, in all eras and in uh, all walks of life. And the book that he'll be describing to you today certainly uh, is uh, a brilliant example of the kind of interdisciplinary uh, reconstruction, imaginative reconstruction of the personalities, the issues, and the events of an era. Uh, it is absolutely gripping. I don't know how many of you have had this experience, but you know, I've had the pleasure now of knowing Adam for four or five years at least, maybe more, and uh, as a colleague, and always enjoy seeing him. When I picked up this book, which kindly was sent to me in advance and started reading it, I had that feeling, whoa, he wrote this? This is really amazing. <laughs> Take my word for it. It is. Uh, Today, Adam Goodhart will be speaking with us about one of the um, signature episodes of the early months of the Civil War, which happened very close to here. And as you know, this building, then the Patent Office building, was itself a player in the events of the Civil War, and you'll see much more evidence of that at both the Smithsonian American Art Museum and the National Portrait Gallery uh, as the sesquicentennial unfolds over the next few years. But Adam will be sharing with us in particular some of the extraordinary uh, stories and facts uh, about today a little-known figure, but in 1861 uh, a national martyr for the North, Colonel Elmer Ellsworth, uh, whose actions in Alexandria Adam will tell you about. Now, my concluding little thing before we talk, oh, and by the way, on the subject of Elmer Ellsworth, our, our timing um, is somewhat off. However, uh, a week from today, the Portrait Gallery opens um, a, a small exhibition, but a wonderful one, about Elmer Ellsworth, and it will be in the alcove of our Civil War galleries, and that opens next Friday. Now, it is my very great pleasure to introduce 
a fabulous colleague, a brilliant historian of American life, Adam Goodhart. Here I am. <laughs> Thanks, Marty. Thanks so much. Thanks, Marty Sullivan. Thanks, Betsy Brune. Um, and thanks to all of you. Thanks as well to the staffs of these two incredible museums in one incredible building. Um, these truly are two of the most remarkable institutions in a city of remarkable institutions. Um, and Marty and Betsy in particular have been um, friends to me and to Washington College and students in many large ways and, and small ways. Most recently, a few weeks ago, my colleague Donald McCall from the Art Department at Washington College and I brought a group of students here, and Marty and Betsy both took time out of their days to come and greet us and show us around the museums and show us their favorite pictures. And anyway, it's been a very special relationship. Now, when one is out speaking about the Civil War at this 150th anniversary of the Civil War that we're now going through, um, one hears this question a lot. Why are we still so obsessed with this story from 150 years ago, from a time when so much else has been forgotten? And I've been on a number of panels and interviews that have addressed this over the past few weeks, and you can come up you know, with different sort of um, highfalutin intellectual responses um, of course, about the continuing wound of the racial divide in our society, um, about the continuing wound left by these 620,000 Americans killed in our most terrible conflict. And there are many others as well. But I also just have to say that, and this is very personal for me in writing about the Civil War, we can't discount just the sheer pull of the undercurrent of story the undercurrent of narrative. Um, there are certain events in history that are just great human stories, and the Civil War, I believe, is, is one of them. You know, um, one of America's greatest uh, storytellers and, and poets, Bob Dylan, when he uh, first came, first got off the bus um, as, a, as a striving musician from Minnesota and Washington in the early 1960s, the country was then marking the 100th anniversary of the Civil War, and he went down to the New York Public Library whenever he had any free time, and he just took out the reels of microfilm, and he writes about this in his memoirs. He just read obsessively through these newspapers from 100 years earlier. And he wrote that he wasn't so much looking for the stories of what happened in the battles um, or what Lincoln did or didn't do. He was absorbing the rhythms of the speech. He was taking in the sermons the political orations, and, and as he said, wonderful phrase that only Dylan could come up with, the epic bearded characters. <laughs> I just love that, epic bearded characters. So that's really what pulled me into writing my book, 1861, um, more than wanting to make a huge new argument about the Civil War, although I, I do make some arguments in the book. Um, it was the pull of, of character, the pull of place, and the pull of, the pull of narrative. So uh, I'm going to, as, as Marty said, um, tell you today a bit about one of the characters who really beguiled me in doing this research and in delving, as Dylan did, into the sort of deep innards of the 19th century. And another great thing when it comes to writing about the Civil War, the Civil War era, um, another of the sort of the great riches of that period is just the incredible wealth of images 
that comes up in American culture and really in, in world culture at that time because of various uh, technological innovations particularly. Of course, the invention of photography, we always um, think of this is the first war that we really see in a somewhat unvarnished way through the pictures uh, of Matthew Brady's studio and others. It's also a moment of um, cheap printing technology coming into its own lithography and, and woodcut so that these pictures are disseminated through the nation, through the world in a way that they really never were before. So anyway, in today's talk, I'm going to um, give you one of these characters, uh, Elmer Ellsworth, um, who was uh, one of the earliest, um, most notable heroes of the war, one of the earliest and most notable casualties of the war, um, and commanded a rather remarkable regiment, the New York Fire Zouaves, who were all New York City firemen he had recruited. So I'm going to give, give you that story, that character, and also give you some of the images that will help, I think, to, um, to illustrate it. Um, I'm going to read to you some, some parts of my book, um, sort of some, some sections of a much longer part of my book, and uh, I'll sort of fill in here and there, skating over the, over the gaps as need be. I'll speak for about 45 minutes or so, and um, then we'll finish up and, uh, and take some questions from you, either about uh, this story or about anything else Civil War related or, or otherwise. So we're going to start um, with exactly 150 years ago this week. And America has just experienced what I think of as its first great 9-11 moment, which is the attack on and the fall of Fort Sumter in Charleston Harbor, South Carolina. One of these moments in which everyone experiences a great national trauma more or less simultaneously, again, through, through technology, the technology of the telegraph. And it galvanizes the nation, changes public opinion overnight. And I think for me, having lived through 9-11 here in Washington, seeing the crowds of people out on the street corners, looking up at that column of, of smoke rising from the burning Pentagon was something that helped me to appreciate what that moment was. So um, we're going to start with that moment in uh, Lower Manhattan. Ah, there we go. Okay. Sometimes you've got to do it the old-fashioned way. Union Square, Lower Manhattan, April 20th, 1861. It was a day unlike any the city had known before. Half a million people, or so the newspapers would report, crowded the streets between Battery Park and 14th. If you were there among them that day, the thing that you would never forget, not even if you lived to see the next century, was the flags. The stars and stripes flew above the doors of department stores and townhouses, from Bowery Taverns and from the spire of Trinity Church. But the one flag that everyone wanted to see, needed to see, was in Union Square itself, the unattainable point toward which all the shoving and sweating and jostling bodies strove. No fewer than five separate speakers' platforms had been hastily erected there, and every so often, above the ceaseless din, you could catch a phrase or two, that handful of loyal men, their gallant commander, the honor of their country, if you manage somehow to clamber up onto the base of a beleaguered lamppost and emerge for a moment above the hats and bonnets of the multitude, you might glimpse what was propped up in the monument in the center of the square, cradled in General Washington's bronze arms, a torn and soot-stained flag on a splintered staff, the flag of Fort Sumter, which had been carried there a few days before. 
140 years later, in an eerie echo of that long-forgotten day, a later generation would crowd around the same statue with candles and flowers in the aftermath of another attack on the nation. But then you lost your tenuous foothold on the lamppost, the flag vanished from sight, and you were down again, buffeted this way and that by the odorous masses of New Yorkers, ripened by exertion and by the sunny spring day, Wall Street bankers in black broadcloth, pale, flushed shop girls, and grimy men from the Fulton docks, more pungent than anyone else, smelling of fish. It was hard to imagine anybody swaggering through such a crowd, but here came someone doing just that. And not just one man, but three abreast, nonchalant young toughs, all dressed in identical baggy red shirts. One had a fat plug of tobacco in his cheek and looked ready to spit where he pleased. Another none too surreptitiously pinched the prettiest of the shop girls he passed. Somehow by common consent, the pressing throngs parted to let them through. They all knew exactly who these superior beings were, the fire bahoys. And as of today, no longer simply that either, for the bahoys had signed their enlistment papers yesterday and were very shortly to be sworn in as soldiers of the first New York fire zouaves. On the way home after the great Union rally, you might have seen many more of them, some 1,200 red-shirted recruits crowding a park just off 14th Street, arrayed in rough military formation. Uncharacteristically quiet, even subdued, they raised their brawny right arms as their colonel, the man they had just unanimously elected to lead them into war, for such was the custom still in the early months of 1861 for a regiment to elect its officers, administered the oath. The young colonel, he seemed from a distance barely more than a boy, was, unlike his thousand-odd comrades, not a New York City fireman. He was not even a New Yorker, unless one counted his childhood far upstate. He was different in almost every way, from the strapping men of his regiment, with their loose limbs and salty tongues, a small man, neat and self-contained, who never drank or smoked or swore. He thrilled to poetry as much as to the tattoo of drums. He had dined at the White House more often than in taverns and mess halls and had come not from the teeming wards of Brooklyn, but from the West. He was also one of those occasional American figures whose death, even more than his life, seemed to mark the passing away of one era and the beginning of another. He would be, briefly, the war's most famous man. And for that moment, the entire conflict, the irreconcilable forces that set state against state and brother against brother would seem distilled into, as one person who knew him well would write, the dark mystery of how Ellsworth died. Like so many Americans of his generation, Elmer Ellsworth, one of those great 19th century names, by the way, they don't name people Elmer Ellsworth anymore, do they? Like so many Americans of his generation, Elmer Ellsworth seemed to emerge out of nowhere. This wasn't quite true, but almost. In later years, some would swear they had roomed with him in a cheap boarding house in Washington long before he was famous, or been his classmate at a high school in Kenosha before he suddenly dropped out and disappeared, or known him living up among the Ottawa Indians near Muskegon, 
where the tribe had adopted him as its chief. But no one was ever quite sure. Odd remnants of his diaries would occasionally turn up, and his parents, at least, who would long outlive him, eventually shared everything that they could recall of his boyhood. He had left home early, though. There were few enough opportunities for him there. Ellsworth was born in the year of the country's first great financial depression, 1837, in a small village in Saratoga County, New York. His ancestors had settled nearby before the revolution, of which his grandfather was a veteran, but the family was poor. Ephraim Ellsworth, the boy's father, had struggled as a tailor until the panic ruined him, forcing him to eke out a living doing odd jobs, netting wild passenger pigeons to sell for their meat, and peddling kegs of pickled oysters door to door on commission. His early life, Ellsworth would write as an adult, seemed to him nothing but a strange jumble of incidents. He was a child who seemed to live half in the gritty reality of his physical surroundings, half in a dream world of his own creation. But we do know that he turned up eventually, as perhaps he was bound to, in Chicago. That town was in its restless adolescence in the 1850s, a half-wild place where patches of prairie still showed like blank canvas among the two- and three-story office buildings, and the occasional wolf still strayed in from the forested shores along Lake Michigan to prowl the muddy streets and plank sidewalks. Restless, too, were the young men who roamed lean and hungry along those avenues of flimsy buildings. From villages in Ohio and western Pennsylvania, from New York and the stony farms of New England, from Germany and Ireland and Sweden, they crowded into the rising metropolis of the Great West. Some found work in the sawmills that ran incessantly, gnawing virgin timber into into clabbered and railroad ties, others amid the stench of the stockyards. Sometimes the tideless river ran viscous with the blood of slaughtered beasts. A year or two before the outbreak of the war, Elmer Ellsworth was one of those thousands of young men, clerking and copying papers in a law office for meager pay, living on dry biscuits and water, sleeping on the bare wooden floor. I'll skip a section here now, but just tell you that um, Ellsworth had never lost his fascination with the military. Um, Like a lot of young men in that day and in this, he dreamt of glory someday on the battlefield. And Ellsworth happened to come of age in a time when, unlike today, uh, participating in the military was almost sort of like a, a sport, almost this sort of amateur sport in which you could participate because America's military was still very much a sort of an improvised volunteer force that was made up of guys like this. The nation's bulwark, this print is somewhat sarcastically titled. These uh, militiamen who would sort of come out and and drill maybe one weekend a month, it was usually more of an opportunity to do some uh, drinking. And um, these were America's uh, bulwark against uh, against foreign invasion. Um, But Ellsworth took the military somewhat more seriously than this, and he poured over um, drill manuals. He read of the exploits of foreign militaries and the wars that were going on in Europe, in in France, and in Italy, and the revolutions of Germany at this time. And he was sort of like one of these figures. I think of him almost as like this young basketball 
phenom, you know, who comes from the rough streets of, of Brooklyn or a fabulous baseball hitter from a village in the Dominican Republic who is just sort of a natural, comes out of nowhere and becomes a sensation. And that was Ellsworth. While he was in Chicago um, living on crackers and water, he became especially fascinated with this remarkable group of military figures uh, from Europe known as the Zouaves. The Zouaves were originally um, a French um, form of, uh, of soldier who sort of developed from the French Algerian troops who um, wore these kind of incredible baggy pants. I mean, it's incredible. They, they went into battle in these sort of baggy pants and funny little um, fezes. And as silly as they appeared to us at the time, they're actually seen, as, as silly as they appear now, they were actually seen at the time as a sort of great innovation and in, almost in military technology. Um, at a moment when most soldiers sort of marched into battle like this, these Zouaves sort of turned somersaults and spun their muskets around and uh, sort of uh, went into battle in these very sort of flexible, acrobatic ways. And Ellsworth is reading about these guys in the Illustrated Weeklies and is fascinated often distant Chicago. But then something extraordinary happens, the kind of thing that Hollywood would invent, but a historian wouldn't dare to. Elmer Ellsworth has like what I think of as this kind of Luke Skywalker moment, this sort of 19th century Luke Skywalker moment, when he's in a gymnasium in Chicago, and he meets an actual French zouave. What's he doing in this gym in Chicago? We don't know, except that all kinds of people turned up in Chicago in those days. But he takes Ellsworth on as a pupil, and Ellsworth starts learning this Zouave method of fighting, and within months, he's an expert, like Luke with his lightsaber. And he organizes these restless young men of Chicago into a Zouave corps, starts to drill them incessantly as hard as he's worked himself to master this. And they perform before a crowd of Chicagoans, July 4th, 1859. And they're a sensation. And the following summer, they go on tour around the entire nation. And they set out, they're traveling by train. And by the time they've made like three stops, they're a nationwide phenomenon. They arrive finally in, uh, in New York, where, of course, every nationwide phenomenon arrives sooner or later. When the lads from Chicago arrived by steam... Oh, I'll show you. Uh, here, are the, here are the lads making the front page of one of the main newspapers at the time, Frank Leslie's Illustrated Newspaper. When the lads from Chicago arrived by Hudson River Steamboat at dawn on the Cortland Street Pier in Lower Manhattan... A cheering crowd already lined the wharf to greet them as artillery pieces boomed official welcome to the greatest city on the continent. Local papers were already using words like mania to describe the public's response to the Zouaves. A local newspaper satirized the media frenzy with a poem. They have come. Who? Again, every man, woman, and child echoes the cry. They have come. Who? Upon lightning wings, the words reach the uttermost bowels of the Union, and millions reiterate them, they have come. Who? 
And the answer, of course, was the Chicago Zouaves. Oddly, very few of the watching thousands could describe afterwards exactly what it was that was so enthralling about Ellsworth and his men. For all the ink that was spilled on the subject of the Zouaves that summer, it is still hard to find any satisfactorily visual account. Although some give us quick glancing snapshots of the action, the young soldiers running in tight formation behind their commander, turning exuberant somersaults and handstands, crouching all together in a tight pyramid of men, bayonets bristling out on every side like the spines of a porcupine. Each man, one journalist wrote, was as wiry, agile, and athletic as a squirrel. Others compared them to tigers, steam engines, and electric clocks. To convey the full splendor of the Zouave's prowess, some were driven to satirical exaggeration. One New York paper assured its readers that when he met an enemy soldier, a Zouave could drive the bayonet, musket and all, through the man's body, turn a somersault over his head, and draw the weapon out the other side in a single flourish. (laughs) When he had to cross a river, a Zouave would nonchalantly throw a rope across it and tightrope walk to the other side. And if his commanders needed someone to reconnoiter an enemy's lines, a Zouave would climb into a skyrocket, blast a thousand feet into the air, and have a complete set of photographs and hand-drawn maps ready by the time he alighted on the ground. As for their captain, the oyster peddler's son, he became almost overnight a sex symbol. That term wasn't used at the time, of course, but it is no exaggeration. Never before had a man become famous and adored, not for his accomplishments, not for being a poet or an actor or a war hero, but simply for his charisma. Now, admittedly, looking at the surviving photographs of him, it is difficult to discern just what all the swooning was about. I mean, he looks sort of like a member of like a 1970s rock band or something, doesn't he? Sort of funny uniforms and long hair and funny mustache. Yet, throughout that pre-war summer, the nation's eyes were on him. John Hay, Abraham Lincoln's secretary, later remembered his pictures sold like wildfire in every city of the land. Schoolgirls dreamed over the graceful wave of his curls, and shop boys tried to reproduce the grand seigneur air of his attitude. Just a few years earlier, an English inventor had created the first photographs that could be reproduced en masse from single negatives. Now Ellsworth became the first male pinup in America's, perhaps even the world's, history. But perhaps I'm Skipping ahead a little bit again here, perhaps the most extraordinary event of that entire amazing tour. They came here to Washington. They performed for President Buchanan on the lawn of the White House. They performed in front of George Washington's tomb at Mount Vernon. I mean, just about in front of Independence Hall, they they made this incredible, incredible tour. Um, But maybe the most amazing stop, certainly the most momentous stop of all, came at the very end. Their last stop before returning home to Chicago was in Springfield, Illinois. And as they perform in Springfield, in the square by the courthouse, a big crowd is watching, and among them is the other most famous man in America that summer, Abraham Lincoln. 
And something happens. We're not quite sure what. There's no good account of this. But Lincoln sees Elmer Ellsworth. He, in fact, may have met him before. The sources are unclear. But he sees Ellsworth and he says, I need this man to come and work with me. I need not just that, I need him to come and, and live with me. And he prevails upon Ellsworth to do this. And it's hard to say no to the man who's about to become president of the United States. And clearly there's this sort of electrical charge between the two of them. You know, Lincoln, um, for all that he was a sort of a, a deep soul and a, and a great heart, had a very hard time becoming close to other people. There really were only a handful of people to whom he really became emotionally close in his life. And Ellsworth was one of them, and it happened almost immediately. So Ellsworth, as soon as he gets back to Chicago, disbands this company of Zouaves, moves to Springfield, Illinois, becomes Lincoln's law clerk, although all the accounts say that he really didn't do much law studying at all. He just sort of hung out with Lincoln, and they like read poetry together and things like that, as Lincoln's running for president. Um, he becomes almost a member of the Lincoln family. Mary Todd Lincoln's younger sister falls in love with him. And then he accompanies Lincoln and his family to D.C., to Washington on the, on the train. And two months after they get here, uh, the Civil War begins with the attack on Fort Sumter. And, of course, this attack on Fort Sumter, as terrible and tragic as it may have been for the nation, is for Elmer Ellsworth exactly the moment that he's been waiting for his entire life. It's the moment when he can seize this palm of glory that he's felt is almost within his grasp since he was a boy. His regiment, as I said, is Chicago Zouaves have been disbanded. Um, He has to reform a unit. And so what does he do but go up to New York City and he says, I want men who can go into a fight now. And so who does he recruit but the New York City firemen? Whatever else they may have been, the firemen of New York were certainly just what Ellsworth hoped for, ready for a fight. In fact, locals often remarked that they seemed less interested in battling fires than in battling each other. The city on the eve of the Civil War was not merely a rough-and-tumble place, but as Harper's Weekly once called it, a huge semi-barbarous metropolis, not well-governed or ill-governed, but simply not governed at all. (laughs) And as for the city's firemen, they were not merely ungoverned, they were almost completely and famously ungovernable. Since colonial times, New York had relied for its fire protection on volunteer companies, much as the nation relied for its defense on volunteer militias. It was a marvelously democratic system that became an utterly impossible mess, although admittedly a colorful and entertaining one, so long as your own house was not the one going up in flames. As the city grew, its warehouses and tenements spreading ever northward up the island of Manhattan, so too did the number of hose, hydrant, and hook and ladder companies ever dividing and proliferating. Their official names formed a kind of prose poem of American grandeur. Mohawk, Valley Forge, Eagle, Excelsior, Niagara, Pioneer, Empire, Lady Washington. But the unofficial nicknames by which New Yorkers 
actually knew them. You know, New Yorkers are very good at giving sort of actual names to things that have official names, Sixth Avenue, right? Um, the names by which they actually called them told a rather different story. Screamer, Black Joke, Hounds, Old Nick, Shadbelly, Bucky Boys, Dry Bones, Old Turk, Man Killer. The contests between these companies were epic, hard-fought, and often bloody. Thirty years' wars whose battlefields were the nighttime streets of Brooklyn and the Bowery, Greenwich Village, and the Five Points. The ringing of a fire alarm wasn't so much a signal of emergency as it was the starting bell of a no-holds-barred decathlon. Companies raced one another to the scene of the fire, hurtling through the muddy, unlit thoroughfares, young runners sprinting alongside with torches as brawny firemen pulled hand-drawn engines weighing up to a ton each. And woe betide any unfortunate gentleman groping his uncertain way homeward from late revels at a tavern or bawdy house who might stumble into their path. As the engines pulled up in front of the blaze itself, another competitive event began as companies vied to see who could pump the fastest. The volunteers stripped to the waist and worked until their breath came in choking gasps as foremen stood atop the engines, bawling orders through brass trumpets above the din. Not surprisingly, these rivalries often degenerated into all-out brawls. The black joke men once rolled out a howitzer loaded with bolts and chain links to defend their firehouse from a rival company's attack. (laughs) While Old Nick's main engine was known to other companies as the Arsenal, since it was rumored to hold a cache of loaded revolvers. In their impatience to avenge defeats, the firefighters sometimes even set buildings aflame so as to hasten the opportunity for a rematch. (laughs) Of course, genteel New York uh, shuddered at press reports of these nocturnal rampages and agitated for reform with little result. Not only were the companies an essential voting bloc for the city's democratic political machine, they had also become folk heroes. Ordinary working men coined the fond nickname Bahoys, based on Irish immigrants' pronunciation of boys. Down in the taverns of five points, people swapped tall tales of the ultimate Bahoy, a semi-legendary figure called Mose the Fireboy, an urban Paul Bunyan who stood eight feet tall, could swim across the Hudson River in two strokes, carried streetcars on his back, smoked a two-foot cigar, and drank wagon loads of beer at a single sitting. When a brawl broke out against a rival company, Mose uprooted lampposts with his bare hand to smite his enemies. The character of Mose may have been a slight exaggeration, but the actual Bahoys could be nearly as impressive figures with their bright red shirts, bristling whiskers, and bulging forearms. Their fame spread throughout the nation, thanks to a series of plays about Mose that began touring to great popular acclaim in the 1840s. The boys became emblems not just of sheer physical strength, but also of the working man and the immigrant, of America's rambunctious grassroots democracy itself in all its vital and sometimes brutal force. So Ellsworth came to New York in the first spring of the war, prepared to form a regiment after the model of the, vi- of the volunteer fire companies themselves, a free association of noble volunteers lending themselves to the Union cause. Moreover, he confidently assured the famous editor Horace Greeley that he could turn the recruits into proper zouaves in as little as five days. 
After all, the Bahois were the finest raw material the city or even the nation had to offer. The firemen of New York are renowned the continent over for their great qualities of endurance, hardihood, activity, and restless daring, enthused a correspondent of the Chicago Tribune. Every man is a gymnast and can run, jump, and climb like a catamount. There is no better material for Zouave soldiers in the world. We predict that Colonel Ellsworth's regiment will reap glory or find a grave. And so, in fact, posters go up all over the city um, recruiting these, uh, these uh, uh, firemen as Zouaves. And before Ellsworth knows it, in the course of 24 hours, um, he has more men than he knows what to do with. Entire firehouses um, enlist in a, single, in a single mass and outfit themselves um, very quickly for this, um, for this uh, journey, to, journey to war. They parade off amid cheering throngs down Broadway to the waiting uh, steamboat to take them off to Washington and the, the scene of the action. Um, they have the fire engines, these sort of gleaming fire engines being drawn alongside the marching troops. They're presented with flags, battle flags, from two of the most famous women in America, Mrs. Astor and Laura Keene, the great actress. Um, they receive a, a handsome check from none other than Boss Tweed himself and lots of donations of underwear and socks from ordinary New Yorkers. And they get on the steamboat, and they head off here to Washington, a city under siege, a city preparing for war. After four days en route to Washington, cooped up on the steamer and then the train, the Zouaves had expected and hoped to disembark straight into the thick of battle. And you could hardly blame them. It had been weeks since their chance, even for a good street brawl. As they tumbled out of their train, a newspaperman heard one Zouave ask, Can you tell us where Jeff Davis is? We're looking for him. <laughs> a comrade chimed in, We're bound to hang his scalp in the White House before we go back. Others squinted in bemusement, looking around fruitlessly for secession flags to capture. On the morning of their arrival, Ten-year-old Willie Lincoln, whose parents had allowed him to stay up late and watch the Grand Zouave procession down Pennsylvania Avenue the evening before, wrote excitedly to a former playmate in Illinois, eking out the letters in laborious schoolboy hand. I suppose that you did not learn that Colonel E. E. Ellsworth had gone up to New York and organized a regiment, divided into companies, and brought them here and to be sworn in I don't know when. Some people call them the Bahoys, and others call them the firemen. It wasn't long before Willie Lincoln and his younger brother Tad had asked their indulgent father for their own pint-sized Zouave uniforms in which they paraded chests out and heads high around the White House grounds. Their parents, the President and First Lady, solemnly reviewed this two-man regiment, which the boys had nicknamed Mrs. Lincoln's Zouaves, and presented it with a flag, and, in fact, a photograph of young Tad Lincoln in his uniform survives to this day. Willie and Tad Lincoln were not alone in having gone a bit Bahoy crazy. Every Zouave is surrounded by a group of eager listeners, a New York Herald correspondent in Washington reported, amused at how these ordinary Bowery roughnecks had become exotic novelties. Their salty New York dialect drew particular admiration. Local newspapermen here, delighted in regaling readers with tales of the Zouave exploits, 
many at least slightly exaggerated in the telling, and these stories were picked up by newspapers throughout the Union. One gang of Bahois was said to have strolled nonchalantly into a restaurant, ordered themselves a fine meal and a round of drinks, or several, knocked over the tables and smashed the crockery at the end of their romp, cheerfully telling the proprietor that he should charge the whole bill to Jeff Davis. Wild rumors of sexual outrages also circulated. Even some of the boys' union comrades kept their distance. I fear we shall, we shall stand a poorer chance with these fellows than with the Southerners, a Massachusetts soldier wrote home. Yet, barely, uh, well, barely 24 hours after his arrival, Ellsworth found himself compelled to place an apology for their behavior in the newspapers. Within the week, however, Ellsworth's pet lambs, as they had been sarcastically nicknamed, were given a fortuitous opportunity to redeem themselves. In the early morning hours of May 9th, a liquor store on Pennsylvania Avenue caught fire. Before long, the flames had spread to a second building and were licking against the walls of a third one, which was one of the many lesser offshoots of the Willard Hotel. A couple of local fire companies arrived and tried fecklessly to quench the flames. But then at last, the cry went up for the fire zouaves. Within minutes... The red-shirted Bahois had leapt from the windows of the U.S. Capitol, where they had been barracked, amazingly enough. Another story in the book. And were rushing pell-mell down Pennsylvania Avenue, pausing only to break into an unattended firehouse and make off with its engine. When they reached the Willard, it was filling rapidly with smoke, and the tarred roof was in imminent danger of catching fire. The New Yorkers called for ladders, and discovering that there were none, promptly formed a human pyramid, clambering six stories to the top of the hotel. Some hauled up a hose, while others grabbed wash basins, tubs, and chamber pots from the guest rooms and filled them with water to soak the roof. One particularly agile and fearless zouave that you can see here in this engraving from Harper's Weekly hung upside down from the cornice as a comrade held him by the ankles to hose the burning liquor store from the best possible angle. This is apparently true. (laughs) In no time, the fire was out, the hotel was saved, and hundreds of onlookers and evacuated guests cheered lustily for the boys from New York. Colonel Ellsworth himself, meanwhile, is spending much of his time with the Lincolns, romping around the White House with Willie and Tad, becoming a member of the family, and preparing eagerly to cross over, he wants to cross over with the first Union forces to invade the Confederacy, to set foot on the soil of Virginia. On some occasions, he would join the Lincolns in peering curiously across the river at a large rebel banner that had mocked them for a month from the skyline of Alexandria. Um, You know, here we are in Washington, very, very close to the Confederacy, right across the river, and... um, A secessionist, as as you'll hear in Alexandria, has raised this rebel banner uh, 40 feet wide that you could actually see from the window of Lincoln's office in the White House. So afterward, some would say that Mrs. Lincoln begged Ellsworth to tear it down as soon as he and his troops reached Virginia, although others disputed this story. For some anxious unionists, the flag was becoming a symbol of the Lincoln administration's slowness to move against the gathering forces of the Confederacy. 
When one visitor to the White House, the radical abolitionist Senator Benjamin Wade of Ohio, pointedly complained to the president about the banner still waving there after so many weeks, Lincoln replied that he should not expect to see it waving for much longer. Then finally, the long-awaited order came. For days, northern newspapers had been full of reports that a federal advance into Virginia was imminent. Secret military moves on foot, (laughs) blared one headline in the New York Herald. Union and Confederate forces faced off across the Potomac, opposing sentries posted just a few hundred yards apart at the ends of the two bridges that spanned the river. Alexandria, the railway hub of northern Virginia, and a secessionist stronghold within sight of the capital was the logical point of attack. And in fact, Ellsworth's regiment of fire zouaves um, is one of the first units allowed across the bridge, sent over the bridge to invade the Confederacy. But alas, as far as Ellsworth is concerned, the battle is over before it begins. Um, He gets there ready to fight the Confederates in Alexandria, only to discover that an even more nimble Union officer has crossed the Potomac on a steamboat ahead of Ellsworth and his troops, secured the, uh, not exactly surrender, but um, capitulation of the Confederate forces, um, and given them um, the uh, free pass to evacuate Alexandria. Um, And the Confederate forces are sort of waving goodbye from a train leaving Alexandria as Ellsworth arrives, um, very frustrated. But it was not in Ellsworth's nature to remain dejected for long. There was still work to be done and laurels for his bold zouaves to win. There were arms and materiel to be captured, railroads to be seized, telegraph lines to be cut. And in any event, he knew, this landing was only the initial stage in a glorious Union thrust across Virginia toward victory. It was the first morning of his war. Ellsworth and a small detachment of men jogged quickly up Cameron Street toward the center of Alexandria. But as soon as they rounded the corner toward King Street, Alexandria's main thoroughfare, they halted. There in front of them was a tall brick building, and hanging from the large pole atop it, stirring only slightly in the still morning air, was the flag that had taunted Washington for weeks, the one President Lincoln could see from his window. The Marshall House was an old hotel, almost more of a tavern with guest rooms upstairs that was known among locals as a second-rate lodging for travelers. It was also known as a center of pro-secession activity. The innkeeper, one James W. Jackson, was one of the area's most ardent secessionists. Jackson had a powerful six-foot build and a temperament always spoiling for a fight. Once, in fact, when a Catholic priest made the mistake of offending him, Jackson beat the man senseless. Anyone foolish enough to utter anti-slavery remarks in his presence received similar treatment. Two years earlier, Jackson had been one of the first local militiamen to rush off to Harper's Ferry in pursuit of John Brown. He returned having missed the fight, but bringing as a trophy a bit of wizened flesh that he boasted came off the ear of John Brown's son, who had died defending his father. As soon as the other southern states had begun to leave the Union, Jackson and a friend commissioned a couple of local seamstresses to stitch up a banner, some 18 feet wide with the clustered stars and three broad stripes of the first Confederate flag. Each time another state joined the rebellion, Jackson had the women add another star, 
And on the afternoon of April 17th, the day Virginia's legislature voted for secession, a single large star was added to the center and the banner hoisted on the 40-foot staff above Jackson's Hotel. Spotting this flag on the morning of May 24th, Ellsworth ordered a sergeant back to the landing for another company of infantrymen as reinforcements and then started trotting off quickly again, planning to capture the town's telegraph office. But suddenly, on some impulse, he stopped and turned back quickly again toward the steps of the Marshall House. His boyish pride and perhaps a desire to impress the journalists accompanying him had trumped military prudence. If he was going to have his trophy, he would cut it down with his own hands. Ellsworth entered the hotel accompanied by just seven men, Ned House of the New York Tribune, Henry Windsor, a corporal in the regiment who was also an occasional correspondent of the New York Times, the regimental chaplain, and just four Zouave corporals. Immediately inside the front door, they encountered a a disheveled-looking man, only half-dressed, who had apparently just gotten out of bed. But regardless of who this person was, he was the first real live Confederate that the New Yorkers had encountered up close. So Ellsworth demanded to know what that rebel flag was, was doing atop the hotel. The man replied he had no idea. He was only a boarder, and all the other guests seemed to be asleep. So, without further delay, the Union men hastened upstairs. Ellsworth stationed one soldier at the front door, another on the first floor, a third at the foot of the stairs. Revolver in hand, he bounded up the final flights toward the roof's trap door, followed by the two newspaper correspondents, the chaplain, and a single zouave armed with a rifle, Corporal Frank Brownell. Climbing a short ladder to the hatch cover, Ellsworth pushed it open and handed Windsor his revolver before sawing away with a bowie knife at the halyards, tethering the huge flag to its staff. Finally, the ropes gave way, and the banner drooped, then collapsed almost onto the men's heads, its defiant stripes suddenly a slack heap of red and white cloth. Ellsworth started pulling it through the open trap door, but it was so large he needed Windsor's help to get the whole thing inside. As the little group made its way back downstairs, the colonel still had most of the flag draped over his shoulders while Windsor followed behind, clumsily trying to roll it up over one arm as they descended. What happened next was too fast for any of the men to fully comprehend. Quickly rounding the turn between the third and second stories, Brownell, House, and Ellsworth saw a figure step onto the landing and level a double-barreled shotgun at point-blank range. Windsor, struggling with his end of the flag, had barely heard the blast of the gun before he felt the cloth go suddenly taut as Ellsworth, still wrapped in its folds, pitched forward. Almost instantly, there was a second louder explosion, and Jackson, the assailant, the man they had seen downstairs, lurched back, his face torn away in a mess of gore as Brownell thrust his bayonet again and again into the innkeeper's body. Moments later, two men, one northern, one southern, lay dead on the staircase, their blood pooling across the dusty boards, soaking the shabby floor cloth, seeping into the folds of the fallen flag. Across the river, five miles away, the capital avidly awaited news. 
President Lincoln had hastened early to the War Department Telegraph Office for the first dispatches from the front lines. Ordinary Washingtonians, too, were waking up and learning that the invasion of the Confederacy had commenced. District residents, peering from their bedroom windows, were disappointed not to see the smoke of musket fire rising above the Virginia shoreline or to hear the deep rumble of artillery. By morning's end, however, a different sound echoed over the city's rooftops as dozens of bells tolled in mourning from church steeples and firehouse belfries. The steamer James Guy was pulling slowly into the Navy Yard with a body aboard, and everyone in Washington already knew who the dead man was. As reports flashed by telegraph across the Union, flags dipped to half-mast in cities, towns, and villages across the North. By early afternoon in newspaper offices from Maine to Nebraska, editors were composing eulogies, reporters compiling obituaries, and poets penning verses that would crowd the next paper's newspaper columns. In Washington, Ellsworth's body was brought to lie in state in the East Room of the White House, his chest heaped with white lilies. The funeral cortege moved down Pennsylvania Avenue between rows of American flags bound in swaths of black crepe toward the depot where Ellsworth's men had disembarked just a few weeks earlier. Rank after rank, of infantry and cavalry preceded the hearse, which was drawn by four white horses and followed by Ellsworth's own riderless mount and more troops and then a carriage with the president himself and members of his cabinet. A torrent of emotion penned up during the anxious weeks since Sumter's fall had been released, pouring out for a dead hero who had never fought a battle but was rather, as one newspaper put it, shot down like a dog. There was more to the response than just 19th century sentimentality, more than just patriotic fever. Across America, Ellsworth's death released a tide of hatred, of enmity and counter-enmity, of sectional bloodshed that had hitherto been dammed up, if only barely, amid the flag-waving and patriotic anthems. Lincoln's secretaries John Hay and John Nicolay wrote in their sweeping history of the war that the response to Ellsworth's death opened an unlooked-for depth of individual hatred into which the political animosities of years had finally ripened. In fact, it was perhaps Ellsworth's death, even more than the attack on Fort Sumter, that made Northerners ready not just to take up arms, but to kill Even after Ellsworth's body had at last been laid to rest on a hillside behind his boyhood home in Mechanicsville, New York, the nationwide fever scarcely waned. Photographs, lithographs, and pocket-sized biographies paying tribute to the fallen hero poured forth by the tens of thousands. Many different versions of the climactic moment in Alexandria. Many of these little Souvenirs, badges that people wore on their, on their clothing, even a, a milk pitcher, incredible thing. I mean, who would want to have their morning coffee with this <laughs> horrible scene? But that's what people did there on the upper right. And also, quickly, this thirst for revenge becomes a part of popular 
culture. Regiments name themselves the Ellsworth Avengers, and this cry, Avenge Ellsworth, Remember Ellsworth, becomes a battle cry all throughout the Union. And remarkably, too, um, Ellsworth's likeness appears on hundreds of thousands of envelopes and letterheads that Union soldiers will use to write letters home to their, to their families. That he becomes a sort of an emblem for the Union cause, as you can see here. And even um, in Alexandria, the Marshall House Hotel is quickly almost literally cut to pieces by souvenir hunters. As Ellsworth becomes almost the sort of modern version of a medieval saint, first people want scraps of the, uh, the flag that he was carrying, the bloodstained flag, and this scrap is actually in the Smithsonian today on the lower left. Then people start cutting up the, uh, the staircase there, slivers of the stairs, until Nathaniel Hawthorne visits a, a year later, and he writes that so much of this, air, this um, staircase has been cut away by souvenir hunters. He says, it's a question for metaphysical philosophers whether the place of the murder even exists. <laughs> and also remarkably, even Ellsworth's uniform with the hole in the chest and the bloodstains gets sent around the Union as a sort of a talisman to raise money for the, for the Union cause. Almost alone among the millions of mourners, perhaps, Abraham Lincoln understood that Ellsworth's death had not been glorious. Others might talk of his gallantry, might hail him as a modern knight cut down in the flower of youth. But for the president, preparing to send armies of Americans into battle against their southern brothers, the double homicide in a cheap hotel represented something else the squalid brutality of civil war. Even close friends of the Lincoln family would be afraid for a long time afterwards to talk about Ellsworth in front of the president, who sometimes wept at the mention of his name. On the morning of the funeral, the East Room of the White House was crowded with dignitaries, generals, cabinet secretaries, ambassadors. At the end of the service, all rose to file past the open casket. Then the line suddenly stopped. Lincoln and his wife stood at length, looking down on the face of their dead friend. Those standing nearest could hear the president lament, my boy, my boy, was it necessary that this sacrifice should be made? Ellsworth, Ellsworth's death was different from those to follow, all those to follow over the next four years. Most Northern writers referred to it as a murder or an assassination, an act not of war, but of individual malice and shocking brutality. Before long, however, many other American places had been soaked in blood. Thousands of Northerners and Southerners in almost equal numbers had been cut down amid the wheat fields of Antietam. Death would come to wear a very different face. As the war's inexorable toll rose and rose, touching almost every family throughout the nation, Americans would lose their taste for collective mourning. Death became so commonplace that the demise of any one soldier, whether a gallant recruit or battle-scarred hero, was drowned in the larger grief. Not until the war's final month 
when another body would lie in state in the East Room and another black-draped train make its slow way north, would Americans again shed common tears for a single martyr. More than a decade later, a reporter named Eli Perkins of the New York Commercial Advertiser happened to be passing through the village of Mechanicsville, New York in Saratoga County. Perkins had known Ellsworth slightly in those long ago days and recalled that this legendary man's boyhood home was in this village. So he decided to stop and take a look. Perkins found the dead soldiers, elderly parents, still living alone in their little wooden cottage where Ellsworth had grown up. The front parlor was a kind of shrine to their dead son, its walls lined with the many lithographs and carte de visite photographs that had been published shortly after his death. But when Eli Perkins walked up the hill behind the house in search of the late colonel's tombstone, he was surprised to find that there was none. When Elmer fell, old Mr. Ellsworth explained, so many people and societies were going to put up a monument that I suppose they got it all mixed up. First, the Chicago people were going to do it, then the regiment, and then the state. Then the citizens around here made an attempt, but still it remains undone. The late war's first great casualty, the man whose name one, newspaper, one New York newspaper had once proclaimed, will not be blurred so long as the record of our war of liberty survives, still lay in an unmarked grave. The Marshall House Hotel in Alexandria has long since disappeared. On that site today stands Alexandria's Hotel Monaco. A bronze plaque on an outside wall install, installed sometime in the last century by the United Daughters of the Confederacy reads as follows. The Marshall House stood upon this site and within the building on the early morning of May 24, 1861, James W. Jackson was killed by federal soldiers <laughs> while defending his property and personal rights. He was the first martyr to the cause of Southern independence. The justice of history does not allow his name to be forgotten. Thank you. And I'm glad to take any questions. So is the grave up in Mechanicsville still unmarked? No. Actually, after this story was published um, in the New York newspaper and picked up in papers all over the country, people were so embarrassed at this about 15 years after the Civil War that they eventually raised the money and put up a monument um, while Ellsworth's parents were still alive. I'm very much enjoying reading your book, but I also enjoy reading the columns in the New York Times, especially the pace that we all get the, the one chance perhaps in our lives to endure the timing of the Civil War, the long wait, but, uh, for example, at Fort Sumter. What's next for you? Will your voice continue for the next four years, and oh, what project will, will that bring? 
Well, endure is an interesting word. <laughs> you know, I haven't been told yet as a rare. I've, I've so enjoyed enduring your work. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't mean, I, I, I appreciate the compliment. But um, no, it's, it's kind of grueling to, you know, live the Civil War day by day by day. And um, I certainly do plan to keep it up for a while. I'm not sure how long um, that will go. I actually just yesterday had, had lunch in New York with my editors there, and the response has been, has been tremendous um, to the series. And they said that even with the New York Times paywall going up a few weeks ago as it did, there hasn't really been a noticeable slackening of, of readership. So they said, um, they said, well, if we stop this series now, the readers will be storming the building with pitchforks and flaming torches. <laughs> but uh, anyway, we'll, just, we'll have to see what the future brings. Uh, yes. Um, can you visit the home now? Is it preserved? Um, the home is still in existence in upstate New York, but I believe it's actually a private house now. As a Alexandrian, just a little side on the plaque on the Monaco. For years it was there on the old Holiday Inn, but it was patinaed, no one noticed it, you couldn't read it. And in a very nice gesture to the community, when the Monaco was rebuilt or restored, they cleaned up the plaque. And now it's shiny as a new penny. Mm-hmm. And when that happened, the, so I understand the uh, office of the mayor, everyone was outraged about it. Hmm. And um, I don't think it was ever resolved as far as what to do about it, and the monument or the plaque still is there. Yeah, and I know there's been some debate over it recently, actually, with the renewed attention that Ellsworth is getting with the anniversary of the beginning of the war. And um, there's some talk, I think, about putting up some kind of a marker to Ellsworth himself, which I think would be nice. <laughs> a little bit belated, but it would be nice. Yeah. Um, could you please describe uh, the feelings of Southerners directly after Lincoln's assassination, um, was he still reviled, or um, did they recognize that really um, this was someone who was the conscience of the, the country, both North and South? Great question. It, it really depended on the, on the person. I mean, one of the things that I, I, one of the reasons I really wrote this book, actually, is that I'm, I'm really strongly a believer in not making generalizations when you write history. And, you know, so many historians like to sort of fit people into these neat categories, you know, the Southerners, the Northerners, the slaves, the free people. And they behaved according to these sort of lockstep, you know, economic and ideological rules. And I really think, you know, in our own time, we know what complicated individuals all of, all of us are, and we have to accord that to the people in the South. So anyway, that's a somewhat fancy, pretentious way of saying that I don't think there's any way to generalize what people's reaction um, was, but that many Southerners um, did feel a sense of satisfied vengeance. Some Southerners um, realized, and I think it was wise of them, that, that this was sort of a tragedy for the South as well as for the North. In fact, there's a, there's a story that um, Jefferson Davis, actually this is told for those of you from the Eastern Shore, this is told by a man who was uh, from near Chestertown on the Eastern Shore, who accompanied Jefferson Davis on his, on his flight after the fall of Richmond describes bringing the telegram to Jefferson Davis announcing Lincoln's death, and Davis reads it and shakes his head sadly um, and says, there passes the only great hope of the South. Whether this is true or not, I think it was a feeling among some of the wiser heads in the South. One or two more questions. Yeah, Murray. You've been in uh, 
deep in the Civil War for a long time now, and, and I would just ask you to enter into the realm of speculation. Oh, gosh. What might have been done, if anything, to preserve the Union without having to destroy the Civil War? Well, wow. <laughs> That's a huge question. You know, it sort of reminds me, um, last weekend, I, uh, a week ago today, I, I read at this Civil War book festival in Harper's Ferry, um, which they, had, they held under a tent outdoors in the middle of like that tornado. Um, and so I get there and the, and the tent is like blowing back and forth. And so I, I read for just like 10 minutes and then cut it short thinking people are going to want to escape from this tent. So I said, okay, any questions? And all these people raised their hands. <laughs> So I start answering these questions, and this little, like, 10-year-old girl raises her hand, and she says, um, after the people seceded, what happened to them next? <laughs> so, so it's one of those big questions. I'm sorry, Murray, I don't mean to make fun of your question, but it's a very big question. Could this war have been, have been preve- prevented somehow? And I think, yes, I think it, it, could, have, it could have been. Um, I think some sort of conflict was inevitable. But in fact, you know, when the South seceded, a lot of people in the North were ready to simply let the South go in peace. A lot of them were ready to strike a compromise that would have enshrined slavery forever within the Constitution. Um, and uh, I think that might well have, have come to pass. I'll take uh, two more questions before we, before we break yeah. here. I have a question that sort of yeah. transcends into that, and that is um, before the war broke out, there were attempts, there were conferences at the Willard Hotel, yes. right? And there were, um, and there were numerous... Southern officials who were congressmen and judges and part of the administration who had to leave as their states were succeeding. I mean, were there, were there opportunities then that were missed? There, there were. Um, I think by that point, um, you know, there was sort of a, a broad middle in America who wanted compromise. I think the largest group, and there were a significant number of people in the South who wanted compromise. That's something that's been lost from the story, the number of Southerners who, I think very wisely, were opposed to secession, very skeptical of this whole Confederate experiment, and who also realized very wisely that slavery was safer inside the Union than it was outside the Union. People said that. Um, but it was one of those moments in American history when the radicals on each side ended up prevailing over the middle, not that we know anything like that today. Yes, last question. Um, a, a new film, The Conspirator, just came out about the trial of Mary Surratt and, the, and, the, and implying that the trial was very uh, unfair to her. And I just wondered if you had seen it or had any, any comment on that. Yeah, I, um, I did see it. Um, the producers invited me to a, to a preview a few months ago. Um, I promised that I would only say nice things about their movie if they only said nice things about my book. <laughs> so I'll only say nice, nice things about it. I think that... Um, they raise all kinds of really interesting issues. It's a very resonant film for the present moment, and I think it's a great topic to, uh, to tackle. And um, I hope people keep making movies about the Civil War. Thanks to all of you. Thanks, Mary. Thank you so much. If I could just offer two parting words. Adam Goodhart will be able to sign books. We have copies uh, in front of the gift store, which is just on the floor above us, and that will be immediately. 
Uh, and by the way, and I'm sure you all know this, uh, the story of Elmer Ellsworth is just one chapter in this brilliant book. And all of the chapters, as we saw today, are essentially about the power of biography, of one person and a connection of people. Uh, it's just a fabulous book. And lastly, uh, beginning next weekend, the special exhibition about Elmer Ellsworth and his life will be opening here in the Portrait Gallery, including that tiny scrap of the blood-stained flag uh, from Alexandria. So again, thank you all for coming, and thanks to Adam for an extraordinary lecture. Thank you.